Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams, and today we're going back to Sunday, the 16th of September, 1956. That was the day that television broadcasting officially came to Australia when Sydney Channel 9 executive Bruce Gingell smiled into the camera lens and said, Good evening and welcome to television. While television was a modern marvel, it was a marvel that had been decades in the making in Australia. Australian television's Night of Nights is called The Logies, named for John Logie Baird, the Scottish electrical engineer who demonstrated the world's first television system in January 1926. But Australia's glittery awards night might actually have been called The Suttons. That's because John Logie Baird owed a debt to an Australian inventor. He was Henry Sutton of Ballarat, and in 1887 he designed an apparatus called the Telephane. It was his dream that people in Ballarat might use this gizmo to watch the Melbourne Cup at a distance. Henry Sutton didn't actually build his telephone, but it employed the principles and extant technology that John Logie Baird would utilise four decades later. After he made television happen, a new generation of Australian inventors got busy replicating a local version. Melbourne's Gilbert Miles and Donald MacDonald were first, with television broadcasts in January 1929. These used a mechanical scanning system similar to the one that John Logie Baird had invented, and signals came from radio stations 3DB and 3UZ, hence television also being known then as Radiovision. This might have seemed like early days, but in 1929 General Electric declared it was going to make 100,000 television sets, with 5,000 destined for Australia, so we could watch what Wireless Weekly magazine called Radio Movies. Along these lines, there were announcements that transmitters were being built and AWA's Ernest Fisk, who we met in the 8th of July episode, said confidently that Melbourne and Sydney radio stations would soon begin picture transmissions. Yet TV remained experimental. In November 1931, Ernest Fisk told Fox Movie Tones Newsreel, quote, Today, we can broadcast a picture, but it is only two or three inches square and not as vivid as we were aiming to be. I believe that success is just around the corner. We shall then look forward to witnessing, in our own homes, the Melbourne Cup as it is run. There it was again, Henry Sutton's Melbourne Cup dream still unrealised, though, in a side note, in 1896, the Melbourne Cup had been the first Australian public event recorded on moving picture film. Despite the obstacles, television was still so on trend that Radio Review, the magazine for early 1930s boffins, changed its name to Television and Radio Review. It predicted, television is an accomplished fact. It will be in Australia in 1932. Television wasn't, but that year Marconi Wireless did beam a television signal from England to Sydney. 
That was quite a remarkable achievement, and it made another of Ernest Fisk's predictions that we'd one day watch the King open Parliament live from London seem a little less like something out of H.G. Wells. In 1934-1935, Brisbane was where it was at in terms of successful Australian television experiments. They were being conducted by Dr Val McDougall and Tom Elliott, who'd launched the city's first radio station. These two worked out of 4CM Studio, which was in the old observatory tower, originally a convict-built windmill. And fittingly enough, given how much early TV would depend on Hollywood, their early transmissions were of still photos of American movie stars. These experiments excited the imagination, as the Brisbane Telegraph reported in August 1934, quote, Numerous letters have been received by Mr. Elliot from interested persons throughout the state for particulars of the plant and equipment that is necessary to look in to the pictures transmitted. The newspaper helpfully explained some of the specifics, quote, A wavelength of 136 metres is used by the station and scanning is conducted at 750 revolutions per minute, the scanning direction being anti-clockwise. A 30-hole scanning disc giving a 30-line picture is used. In other words, the futuristic television sets from the covers of Wireless Weekly magazine were still in the future. By September 1935, though, Tom Elliott had broadcast the first high-definition, at least for its time, cathode-tube-ray television image in Australia. The Courier-Mail enthused that he was, quote, effectively transmitting pictures of 9 inches by 4 inches with almost 100% clarity. Proving this, the following month Tom Elliott transmitted an image of an issue of the Courier-Mail newspaper from the station in the old observatory tower to the Courier-Mail's own offices a few miles away, and the newsprint was perfectly legible. That year, 1935, Tom Elliott said if the federal government had the will, Australia could launch low-definition television immediately and lead the way worldwide in this technology. Of course, that didn't happen. What Australia did get in April 1938 was a visit from Mr TV himself, John Logie Baird, when he attended the World Radio Convention at Sydney University. By then, the United Kingdom did have a television industry. John Logie Baird said that the number of TV sets in London had doubled to 8,000 in the last four months of December 1937. The city's people, he said, could go into any respectable radio shop and buy a televisor, as they were known, with some 15 different makes to choose from. Having seen this, John Logie Baird said in his address to the World Radio Convention that television had arrived, not just in a technical sense, but in a commercial one. He told his audience, quote, In London now, a regular daily television service is in operation. The radio and wireless manufacturers have their television departments and are making and selling televisors to an ever-increasing public. When I say, therefore, that television is with us commercially, I'm not expressing an opinion, but merely stating a fact. Even bigger things were on the horizon. He said that just two months earlier, in a London theatre, a colour television image measuring an impressive 12 feet by 9 feet had been shown, broadcast from 10 miles away. Given all of this, John Logie Baird said that all that was needed was the right stimulus for television to prove as profitable as radio. Ernest Fisk, who was now Sir Ernest Fisk, was also on hand at the radio convention. 
While he was usually very much the optimistic futurist, Sir Ernest Fisk sounded a bit of a glum note, saying that so far Australian television hadn't returned any money to experimenters. Further, he said it was unlikely to do so in the near future. Showing the Melbourne Cup, that old chestnut, in Sydney via landlines would cost half a million pounds. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's $45 million today. So Ernest Fisk predicted it'd be 10 years before television really took hold down under. Yet with World War II about to start, it'd be far longer than that. After the war, despite bringing four German scientists down under to work on the best way to transmit images over long distance, progress on Australian television was painfully slow. That wasn't helped at all by political wrangling, with left and right-wing politicians disagreeing over who should have access to the airwaves, government-controlled or commercial broadcasters, and under what conditions. For much of this time, the Australian public actually knew what they were missing out on. In 1949, a variety show was put on at Melbourne Town Hall and it was broadcast live to eight televisions inside the venue so people on hand could watch the entertainment as it happened on stage and compare it with what was happening on screen. In April that year, Sydney got its first public demonstration of TV sponsored by the Shell Oil Company. This was a program that was shown on television sets in the windows of the Hotel Australia, drawing thousands of people who'd stand on the street to watch in a scene that would be familiar for a long time to come. In 1950, a bus decked out as a mobile television station toured the country, giving a 45-minute presentation of televisual programming and offering Australians the chance to face the camera to see what they'd look like on the box. It wasn't until February 1953 that the Royal Commission on Television was held. After that came the decision to implement a two-tiered system, with a government channel run by the ABC and two commercial stations, each in Sydney and Melbourne, to begin with. Now it was a race to see who'd be first to go to air. Sir Frank Packer, whose Australian Consolidated Press owned the Daily Telegraph and the Australian Women's Weekly, built the Channel 9 studio at Willoughby on the North Shore, crowned by the massive transmission tower, which until 1981 was Sydney's tallest structure. In his rush to win the race, Sir Frank Packer decided to go live before the studio was even finished. So at 7 o'clock on the night of the 16th of September 1956, operating out of temporary studios in a church hall in Surrey Hills, Australia's first commercial television station went to air, its signal relayed to Willoughby and then broadcast from the top of that tower. Bruce Gingell appeared and uttered those famous words. Good evening and welcome to television. Side note, the original film of this, which had been shot in a Channel 9 edit suite, was lost and the footage we've seen and heard ever since was a recreation shot a couple of years later. The first night's television program included a short pre-recorded film called This Is Television, which showed how the station had been built and how programs were to be made. Sir Frank's Daily Telegraph put this Australian first on the next day's front page, though the newspaper modestly admitted, quote, We believe our programs will get better and better. You had to hope so. Here's the Sydney Morning Herald's television guide from the 27th of October, 1956. Today's TV, TCN Channel 9. 7pm, News. 7.18, Mickey Mouse Club. 8 o'clock, 
Speeches by the Prime Minister, Mr Menzies, and Dame Patty Menzies, the Premier, Mr Carl, Archbishop Mal, Cardinal Gilroy, and others. 8.15. Accent on strings. 8.30. Smoking out the Nolans. 9. I love Lucy. 9.29. London Playhouse. 10.25. Racket Squad. That was it. By the way, Smoking Out the Nolans was a 1955 episode of the TV show Gunsmoke. Just a week after this guide appeared in Sydney, Melburnians got television. On the night of the 4th of November 1956, HSV, which was owned by the Herald and Weekly Times, who published The Sun and Melbourne Herald, began broadcasting. Rather than Bruce Gingell, Channel 7's Melbourne debut included remarks by Prime Minister Menzies, who'd clearly embraced the new medium. With the Olympics just 18 days away, that night Melbourne viewers also saw a live broadcast of an Olympic-themed variety program from the city's Tivoli Theatre. Incidentally, this show marked the TV debut of a character who, unlike Robert Menzies, is still with us, Mrs Edna Everidge. Back in 1956, a 17-inch black-and-white television set would set you back 200 to 300 pounds. This was a small fortune, and for years to come, many people would watch the flickering TV images in shop windows or in the lounge rooms of their fancy friends and neighbours. On the 1st of November 1960, one million Sydney siders crowded outside television stores and anywhere they could see a screen to witness history being made. This was the day that the Melbourne Cup, the 100th Melbourne Cup, was telecast live interstate for the first time. Of course, now we can watch the Melbourne Cup and just about anything else on not only huge high-definition widescreen television sets, but on our portable screens that are forever trying to distract us. But in a case of the more things change, the more they stay the same, consider this headline from the Canberra Times, Television sets in cars. This wasn't an article announcing that such things were possible. The article read, Melbourne, Thursday. The Australian Motor Vehicle Standards Committee acted today to restrict the use of television sets in cars to prevent motorists from being distracted from their driving. The committee recommended to the Australian Transport Advisory Committee that sets should be placed in such a position that their screens could not be seen by drivers either directly or by reflection in rear vision mirrors. No doubt that was a very sensible policy. The date for this modern sounding story? The 17th of October, 1958. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Just a note before I go, like many Australian podcasters, my shows are labours of love, mostly supported by money I earn from other work. For the next couple of months, I'll be juggling Australia on this day and Forgotten Australia with a full-time day job, so I'm going to do my best to keep producing episodes as often as I can. Thanks for your patience and for listening, and if you've got a moment and you'd like to help Australia on this day reach more people, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes. Catch you next time. 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.